0: Thank you for praying. Good morning. You know, one of the most interesting things about Jesus is when he walked the earth, there's no doubt that he was a religious leader, right? Jesus was a religious leader, but when he walked the earth, he didn't gravitate Toward religious people, right? He, he was sent from God, but he didn't hang out with those who, consider, who were considered by most in that day as the most godly people. And, and one of the things that we, we say at, at Zion all the time is this, is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back, Take it a step further, the, the group that was most uncomfortable with religious talk, spiritual talk, talk of the law and talk of faith and, and, and talk of, 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 uh, of the temple and, and being in and around the temple, right? They were the ones who seemed to be the most comfortable people when they were around Jesus, if you take time to, to study the Gospels, think about all the times, note all of the times that, the, that it's mentioned about crowds. Crowds gathered. Jesus, make no mistake about it, he drew crowds. Crowds of people who were nothing like him, but they liked him. And here's the challenge. And we, we know this, Right? As the church, we are the body of Christ, right? We, we are his ambassadors. We're his representatives here on planet Earth. And what was true of Jesus personally should be true of us personally, but also true of us collectively. I and mean, let's think about it. There were tons of people in Jesus' day who didn't understand him they, they didn't get his teachings. They, 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 they didn't act like him. They were not him, but, but they still liked him. When I think about where we're at as a church family and what we're emphasizing uh, over these next several weeks, this idea of who's your one, I'm convinced, and I hope you're convinced of this as well, that we, as followers of Jesus, should be some of the most liked people in our communities. We should be some of the most liked people in our communities. You know, even if our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, people that we know, people that we love, people that we care about, aren't ready to drop their nets take up their cross and follow Jesus personally, even if they are skeptical of what we believe and the faith that we embrace, that there's something about how how we live that causes them to at least want to lean in and they become more curious about who we are and why we do what we do because they see how we love them, how we love one another, and how we love God. We've used this illustration, I think it's a great illustration. How many of you enjoy watching movie trailers? whether you're sitting in a movie theater or scrolling through your phone, when a movie trailer comes on, you'll stop, you'll watch. And as you're watching that movie trailer, in real time, you're making a decision. That decision is whether or not that movie trailer makes you want to see the movie, right? And there are times that you watch a movie trailer and you're like, oh, wow, that looks really good as you're eating your popcorn, I, I think you know. I think I want to see that one. That 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 that's really interesting to me. And there are times you watch a trailer and you're like, I don't get it. It doesn't look good. That looks boring. That doesn't like yuck. I'm not interested in that, right? And 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 we've said this that that our lives really do serve as a movie trailer in some ways for people, and our lives ought to cause people to at least lean in and say, I'm interested in finding out more. I'm interested in learning more about this guy that he or she or, or that we say that we're following with our whole heart, soul, and mind. Look, as a church, we want to be like Jesus. And everybody said, no, everybody said, duh. <laughs> duh, right, it's not hard. We want to be like Jesus. And if we're truly like him, we ought to be liked by people who are not like him. You know, one of the things that made Jesus unique was his, his adjectives. The way, that, the way that he described people. I mean, when we, when we think about people, we all use adjectives, blank people. We, we think about people, there's, there's usually something in front of it. When we, when we think about people, we usually think of them or describe them or talk about them in, in terms like this. Well, they're good people. That's bad people over there. He, he's a bad person. She's a bad, a bad person. Uh, we talk about rich people and poor people. We talk about, in the political sc- scheme of things, right, liberal and conservative, Democrats and Republicans. We talk about smart people and not-so-smart people. Right? We talk about young people, and we talk about Ken Nellis. I mean... <laughs> He is just. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> there are different ways that we that we uh, that we talk about people. And let's say let's let's think about this. Let's just be honest. We're just we're just talking a little bit now before I preach. We all connect with different people. We all have our tribe, my people. Right when you go into a, a, a setting, a public gathering, a, a, a wedding, or, or you, you go to some other you know social social gathering, you, you're on the lookout for your people—people people that you know, people that you connect with, people that you're like. You know, when I go into a setting and I'm looking at a group of guys, and I've got a group of guys that are talking about hunting, and a group of guys talking about football, who am I gravitating toward? pretty easy, right? Nothing wrong with that. We, we all connect with different groups of people. We all have a my people. People liked Jesus, though, because of how he thought of them, how he referred to them, how he described them. And we're going to see how he described people as we unpack the message this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15, which is where we're going to be today. But here's, here's something that you need to understand. The way Jesus described people was and is a reflection of how he feels about people. And not just how he feels about people, but what he believed About people. If you have your Bible in Luke chapter 15, we're going to work through uh, much of this chapter today. Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, um, please stop it at our welcome desk. We'll get you a copy of God's word. All right? If you want to open up your your phone and uh, your Bible app, that's great. The, The verses will also be up on the screen. But here in Luke's gospel... Chapter 15, a very familiar chapter to to many who have been following Jesus for some time. Luke, the gospel writer, says this. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Let's just stop right here. Do you see see the, the adjectives? Tax collectors and sinners. Remember last week we talked about Zacchaeus. And he was a tax collector, and we said last week that tax collectors had their own category. Sinners were sinners, but he, if you were a tax collector, it was you were a sinner and some. You were even worse than a sinner. You were a tax collector. And so Luke makes note of the fact that where Jesus was, tax collectors and sinners tended to show up. And, and But let's just think about this for a minute. Luke was not an eyewitness. If you know the, 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 the context of Luke's gospel, Luke wasn't there. Luke went on an, on an investigative journey. He was, uh, he was a doctor, but he was also commissioned to, to do some investigative reporting on the life of Jesus. And, and we don't know all the details, but at some point in time, he's interviewing somebody who was there when Jesus talks About these three parables that we're going to unpack today, and their description to Luke would have been, "Yeah, that day that Jesus told those parables about the lost things, there was just a bunch of tax collectors and sinners there." And Luke's like, "Okay, tax collectors, sinners, there—that's who was there. Okay, that—that's who gravitated toward Jesus." Right, they didn't hang up, Jesus didn't hang up flyers, there was no big bands that were playing, there was no hype, it was just him. People showed up, and they were tax collectors and sinners. And then, then verse number two, it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's a whole nother group. You got the tax collectors and sinners, and then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were the religious people. And when whoever Luke would have been interviewing was, was talking about this moment, they said something like this, Luke, I don't remember all the details, but it was like, it was like the Pharisees and scribes were saying, Jesus, you came as a religious leader, but you, you never hang out with us religious people. We don't get it, and we don't like it. So Luke's writing that down. He's like, yeah, the, the, the religious people, they grumbled. They complained. They, they didn't like it. They, they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus knew that both groups were there that day, and Jesus knew that both groups tended to use the wrong adjectives, to describe and categorize people. Jesus knew that in in that group of people that he was talking to on this day, they tended to think in terms of good and bad. They tended to think in terms of acceptable and unacceptable. They tended to think in terms of clean and unclean. Those were the the primary ways that people saw people in Jesus' day. But Jesus is a master communicator takes this opportunity, since both crowds were present, to tell three parables that describe how our Heavenly Father feels about people, and how we ought to feel, and how we ought to view people if we indeed are following Jesus. Jesus uses, we'll see, as we unpack today, he uses adjectives that would have irritated the religious crowd and endeared the sinner's crowd. Three parables, again, if you've been in church, you are pretty familiar with them, so we'll go through them quickly. But Jesus starts with this first one, verse number three, he says, he says this, and he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. They would have all agreed they were in the crowd that day. Yep, that's what you do. You leave the 99 to, to find the one. Now, again, in our modern day, in our culture, and the way we would process it, we would say, what's the big deal? You still have 99 more. But you see, you weren't a shepherd In Jesus' day, you didn't understand, you wouldn't understand the value of their sheep. But in Jesus' day they would have said, Of course, of course the shepherd is going to leave the ninety-nine and and go looking for the one. Let's continue reading. And it says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. There's an assumption made in this parable. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, but but why would a, a shepherd put a sheep on its shoulders? It's because something's happened to that sheep. It's been injured, it's been hurt. And, and, and this week, as I was thinking about this parable, listen, we all have people in our lives who, who have been injured, who've been hurt. Some have been injured and hurt by religious people. Some have been injured and hurt by, uh, by the church, by, by people in the church. Some have just been hurt and injured because of just the circumstances that they have experienced in their life. And if it's gonna take somebody to, to pick them up, to, to carry them. Back into the fold. Verse six. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I found my sheep. The parable is not a a very, you know, theologically deep parable. It's not a parable, it's not a teaching that's hard to understand, right? When you find something that was lost, that was important to you, you feel better about it when it's found, and, and you're, you, you're excited about it. And so when I think about the point of this parable, uh, we could say it this way, when we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's not lost. We focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's not lost. Men, imagine... And it could go either way. I'll just use I'll just use this 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 illustration. If your if your wife calls you, she's out shopping, and she she she's on the other, other end of the phone and and she says, Honey, I got some bad news and I've got some some good news. And you're like, Well, what's what's the bad news? And she says, I've lost my wedding ring. Okay, well, what's the good news? And she says, but I still have my phone. As a husband, you'd be thinking, who cares about your phone? You lost something that ought to be, right, much more valuable than your phone. It doesn't really matter that you still have your phone. You lost something of great value. Who cares about the phone? How many of you have more than one child? Anybody have more than one child? Okay, Question. Some of you have three children. Anybody with three children? Any three children? Okay. All right, so you got three children. You're at the mall. One child wanders away. Anybody go? That's all right. I still got two. I, I, it depends on the kid. That's, we have an honest person in the room. Amen. Depends on who it is, right? But we, we would never be like, well, I still have two out of three, so I'm doing all right. No, we would immediately stop. What's going on? And and we would, in a sense, neglect the two, right? They're, they're with you. They're found. I'm not going to go get you ice cream right now. We're not shopping for toys. Your brother or your sister's gone. We're not going to do anything until we go find the one that is lost. Like, we get that. Like, again, that that sense of, like, If something is valuable to us and we lose it, it becomes the focus, even if we have to neglect other things. You know, the truth is, most churches, and and, and if we're being self critiquing, I'm not saying critical, but if we're at least being willing to be honest with ourselves as a church, there is often a tendency to focus more of our time, more of our energy, more of our resources, more of our planning around those who are already found. Th- those who still are, are, are in, the, in the fold, so to speak. Th- those who aren't lost. We, we tend to focus on insiders more than we tend to focus on outsiders. And, and we're working on that, right? Can, can, and the, the first step of that is like as a church, let's be honest, that's a tendency. We, we tend to do that. It's very easy to do. But then look at the, look what happens next, verse seven. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This would have probably offended both groups. Well, probably would have offended sinners for being called out, and it would have probably been offensive to the righteous for implying that God loves sinners more than them. But he says, look, there's rejoicing. There's a celebration in heaven when one that is lost becomes found. Jesus keeps going. He keeps giving clues about his adjectives. He tells another parable. He says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, again, he goes on to a new parable. The lost sheep, the 99, are left to find the one. And in this, in this parable, the, the, the nine are, are, are safe, and the one is lost, so, so the woman says, I'm going to go find the, the one coin. You need to understand a little bit of context. This wasn't loose change that was stuck between the couch, right? If, if you had ten coins and you lost one coin, be honest, you wouldn't care. But that's not what we're talking about in this parable. In, in, in Jesus' day, as he's telling this parable, those who were listening would have understood that he's talking about, uh, more than likely, a headband that had coins attached to it that a father would, would present to his daughter and that would become part of a dowry in any kind of a marriage arrangement. Kind of like saying to the the would be husband, "Hey, if you get me, you also get this. You also get these coins that my fi-. like." It was important and it meant something, right? And in others, as I was reading again, just because I wanted to get my mind around the, the importance of the moment. Um, uh, some some commentators would say that it also was a picture of of this that if a woman was. Uh, a sinner. As she was caught in adultery, or something to that effect. That a husband could could and would often just remove a head. One, one of the coins in the headband is kind of like that scarlet a moment, right? As kind of a sign that you've messed up, and now that that headband would forever show that the woman was, you know, was a sinner, had had screwed up. And so again, it probably meant that she wasn't going out of the house. Until she found that coin. And so in the story, that's what she does. She works hard until she finds the coin. Would have been a bad look for her to leave home without it. Continue reading in verse 9. It says, and when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. Again, Do you feel the emotion that Jesus uses in both stories? The the, the emotion that comes with finding something that is of great value. There's there's great joy, there's rejoicing. Let me illustrate something for you. Everybody take out your phone. Hold hold, Hold up your phone, let me see your phone. How many of you feel emotion toward your phone right now? Somebody's, another honest, we guys are being honest today. We had one reason, I feel emotion. You, you don't feel anything right now emotionally about your phone. It's just your phone, is what it is. This afternoon, lose it. Like lose it, don't just misplace it, but lose it. Leave it on the top of your car as you leave the church today. And all of a sudden realize I have absolutely positively lost my phone. How many of you in that moment when you realize that your phone is and actually honestly and truly lost, how many of you would feel something about your phone in that moment? There would be an emotional response to the reality of a lost phone. And you would do whatever it takes to get people to help you find your phone. And when you find your phone, if you find your phone, right, you would be relieved, you you would be overjoyed, you'd be thrilled, you'd be happy, you'd call people and say, hey, 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 listen, I just wanna let you, know I found my phone. I found my phone. I don't have to change all my credit cards and passwords. You know, I don't have to start over my whole, it feels like we have to start a whole life over. Unless you have backups and all, I don't want to get into all that stuff. But anyway, you understand, right? The illustration carries when we think about people. And in these two stories, we see the emotion that, that surrounds us when we lose something of value and then find it again. Again, we can say it this way when we lose something of great value, we will go to great lengths to find it. This is the point that Jesus is making. But at this point, what are the people thinking? Oh, Jesus, I get it. I have lost sheep, lost coins. I get it. But Jesus, is there, is there something else? These are great stories, but what's the, what's the so what? What are, you, what are you driving home here? What, what's the punchline? And after Jesus tells those two stories, he tells one more story. He doesn't stop with the sheep. He doesn't stop with the coin. He begins to tell the famous story of a father and his rebellious son. And we're not going to read the, the, the rest of the chapter. You can read it for yourself in Luke 15, 11 through 32. And the story would actually reveal that he's not the father of just one son, but he had two sons. And the younger son goes to the father. He says, you know, Dad... When you die, I get half, right? That's right, son. Well, Dad, it seems to me, I mean, just looking at you, you look pretty good, you're in good health, you exercise, you eat right. It appears to me that you're probably not going to die anytime soon. It appears like you're gonna live long. And dad, I want you to know something. I, I've got I've got plans i got things I want to do in my life. i got some dreams. i got some goals. I've got some living to do. So, Dad, here's what I would, I would propose. Let's pretend like you've died. And that's how it would have come across. That's what it, how it would have felt to Jesus' audience. Dad, let's pretend like you've died, and you just go ahead and give me What's mine now? Dads, can you imagine that? Can you you imagine the emotion of a son or a daughter saying, Dad, since I don't think you're going to die anytime soon, let's just go ahead and pretend like you're already dead and give me what I've got coming to me. Give me my inheritance now. And what does it tell us about the son? Well, in the story, we can say it this way, that the son was gone relationally long before he ever left home. He was gone relationally long before he actually walked out the door. But here's the thing about the father. Here's the thing about the father. He wanted the relationship with his son so badly that he chose, stick with me, he chose the shortest route possible back to a relationship with his son. What was the shortest route possible? He let him go. As a matter of fact, he funds his departure. Here you go, son. This is yours. Go ahead. See, he, he loved his son more than he cared about his own reputation because, again, culturally, this would have been unheard of. Th- this, would have, this would have caused the community to think that the father was a fool. But this is a father who didn't want his son to simply be in his home, he wanted his son to be in his heart. He wanted a connection. With his son. He wanted to be connected with him relationally, not just spatially. It wasn't just good enough for him to have his son living under his roof. He wanted his son living and connected to his heart. So, what does the father do? When we know the story, he let him leave. There's awkward hugs exchanged, and the son leaves. And and again, the parable is what it is. It's a story. Right? But we can just imagine, think about it in our own terms. You know, he, he goes out and he buys a car. He's got a duffel bag full of cash. He he you know rents a condo somewhere on the beach, no doubt. Because so if you're gonna have a party, that's where you want to party on the beach. I'm just telling you. Woohoo! Love the beach. And he starts living it up. Right? Again, putting it our, through our our Western modern culture, it's it's drugs and alcohol and women and wine and a great time in his eyes, and he just wastes all of his inheritance. And and, and you know that may not be your story specifically, but in a sense, it's all of our stories because biblically speaking, we all want our own way we all wander and go astray. All we like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray. We have done what we wanted to do. And it's looked different in all of our lives, but we have all been the prodigal, living how we think is gonna make us happy, what's going to please our own hearts. But eventually, the money runs out, and so do all the friends, and so do all the drugs, and so does all the alcohol, and so does all the women, and so does all the good times. They're gone. And the story says that he ends up living out of and working in a pig slot, a pig pen. Towards sin will always lead us, it'll lead us to places that we don't want to go. And eventually the son is overwhelmed with this feeling that he is disconnected from his father. He's disconnected from home. And again, as a communicator, Jesus doesn't say this, but when you just think about the story, I would add this, the son misses home and he's wondering if home misses him. He didn't expect that home would miss him. So instead, he decides to come up with a strategy. And in his mind, he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm I'm not going to go back and expect my dad to treat me like a son. I'm going to go back and and I'm going to ask my dad if I can simply live as one of his servants. At least if my dad's gracious enough to, to let me live as a servant, I'll be better off than I am now. I won't be eating with the pigs in the audience is they're listening to this story. There's no doubt some that, that, that probably began to connect the dots to what Jesus was driving at, to, to what Jesus was, was trying to communicate. And some in the audience, just like there might be some in this audience here this morning who are beginning to think, you know, I'm far from God. I've I've wandered away. Or maybe I walked away or maybe even I ran away. I wanted to do my own thing. But you know what the truth of the matter is? Doing my own thing, my own way has left me broken and alone and completely empty. And in Jesus' day, maybe someone in the audience or somebody here this morning is thinking to themselves, you know, I wonder if there is a place for me in God's house. I wonder if there's a place for me with God anymore. I wonder if God would welcome me back home again. Back to the story, look at verse 17. Here's what it says. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. He's rehearsed that in his mind, and so the son gets back, goes, gets up, and he goes back to the, to the father. And he takes the chance, and he heads back home. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt something. What's the blank there? Well, it depends on what your adjective is, when you think about people. And it depends on what your adjective is when you think about your heavenly father. Because some grew up in an environment where you think that, that this story should end with his father felt anger. His father felt vindicated. I told you so. His father felt justified in sending him away. His father felt smugness and said, I told you so. See, depends on how you feel about people is how you would end that statement. But some of you are reading, and you know what Jesus said the Father did, and what, more importantly, the Father felt. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion. He felt compassion. Again, I wasn't there, but I can just imagine that there was an audible gasp from the crowd. (gasps) Wait, Jesus, do you not remember how the story started? Did you forget the details of your own story? What father would feel compassion for a son who did what he did? And maybe it's not recorded, Maybe Jesus said, Well, you know, you'd be right if the father in the story shares your adjectives when it comes to people. But aren't you glad that he didn't and doesn't? In the story, the father runs and embraces the son and he kisses him. I never thought about this. And why didn't the the father run toward the son? when the son was walking away? Why why didn't he try to stop him? I mean, what's the point of him waiting until the son comes back toward him? Again, it's because of the relationship. The father desired a relationship, a a connection. It wasn't just about keeping his son under his roof. He wanted his son connected to his heart. But as soon as the, the son turned and began to make his way back home, The father ran toward him, and he kissed him. (gasps) Think about it. Where's the son coming from? He's coming from living with pigs. And they would have been Jewish, no doubt, in the story. See, Jesus wanted his audience to know that our heavenly father sees us differently than we tend to see people and see each other. We think of people in terms of not good versus good, rich, poor, again, Democrats, Republicans, smart or not. But that's not, that's not how our Heavenly Father sees us. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 21 says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This would have been probably a rehearsed speech that he wanted to say it just right. This is what I need to tell you, Dad. I know what I I did. But the dad says, you know what? None of that matters. None of that matters because you're back now. You're back now. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Let's throw a party because my son is back home. Then, and all of what we've said leads to, to, to this Jesus says something about how our Heavenly Father sees people. And it has to become the way forward for us as Jesus' people. Listen, we we say this, right? You, You can decide whether or not you want to follow Jesus. But once you decide to follow Jesus, you don't get to decide what that looks like. We take our, our cues from him. And, and and when Jesus talks about how the Heavenly Father sees people, is the same way that He sees people. Because what did Jesus say one time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. We're, we're connected. Our hearts are connected. And so what do we see happening? Look at verse number 24. And this is the whole point of the message. The Father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you see it? The Heavenly Father saw his, in the story, the Father in the in the story saw his son as being dead, but now alive. He sees him as lost, but now he sees them as found. Those are our Heavenly Father's adjectives. I think we have a screen up there, or a slide up there. Dead and alive, lost and found. That's it. What would it look like if this is how we began to see people that we come in contact in our life. Again, there are tons of ways to describe people and we all describe people differently. But Jesus wants us to know that our Heavenly Father, when he sees people, when he describes people, this is how he sees them and this is what he says. They're either lost or they're found. They're either dead or they're alive. And we can see in this chapter, these three parables, that his primary concern is not for those who are home, not for those who are connected. It's not for those who are found. God would say, they're good. The 99 sheep, they're good. The nine coins, they're good. The older brother, he's good, unless you read the story and you find he isn't so good, right? But he's at least home. Home. Jesus wants us to understand something about his Father's heart for the one. And again, when we put together slides and you know, Facebook, mess- or Facebook you know, posts and we, we give titles to, to messages, that's all it is. Who's your one is a, is a simple way to ask an important question. But that question, who's your one, is born out of this passage. God's heart for one. God's heart for the one who is lost, the one who is strayed, the one who has wandered. He values them more than we can imagine and wants them to be found. Not just so that he, they can be found, but so they can have a connection, so they can have a relationship with him. The thing that they were created for this connection with their heavenly father. This was and is Jesus's priority. It's why he left heaven to come to earth, so that the lost could be found, so that those who are spiritually dead could be made spiritually alive, so that the relationship with our heavenly Father that was broken because of the fall and because of sin could be restored, and we can experience the kind of connection that we that He wants. This is why Jesus spent so much time with disconnected people. It's because they were disconnected. It's why he spent time with people who were far from God. It's because they were far from God. It's why Jesus spent time with those who were finding their way and figuring it out along the way. And it's why we must do the same thing as his followers as his body and, and what does that look like and man it starts with looking like love it, it looks like being a friend it looks like spending time with it, it looks like going out of your way for but at the end of the day it also looks like seeing them the way God sees them not as your neighbor not as your brother or your sister not as your coworker not as your BFF, not as your frenemy, right? But when you see them, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if this person in God's eyes is lost or found. I wonder if this person that I work with, that that I see at the Y, I wonder if they're spiritually dead or if they've been made spiritually alive and we begin to interact with them accordingly. We began to love them accordingly. We began to demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus in front of them accordingly. And then we pray like crazy that God would give us the opportunity to talk with them about his son, our savior, the one who lived and died and rose again. So as our worship team comes, if we're going to become a church that has his heart, we have to examine our adjectives. The way we see, the way we feel, the way we describe people. Or we do we think, ah, they're just not interested. Or do we think on the other end, well, they're a really good person. I think that's more our tendency is we just think, well, man, he's a really good guy. I'm, I'm sure God's, God's good with him. She, she's a really good mom. I'm sure everything's good with her. We have that tendency, right? Push, push through that and really, really begin to wonder, are they lost or found? Are they dead or alive? And wonder this. I wonder if God wants to use me to move them one step closer to home. One step closer back to the Father where they belong so that ultimately the Heav- our Heavenly Father can wrap His arms around them and embrace them and then throw a party for them in heaven because this... His son or his daughter was dead and is alive. His son or his daughter was lost and is now found. And if you're here today and you're the one sheep that's wandered, the one coin that has been lost, or the son who up to this point in your life has said, No thanks. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live my way. I, want, I hope you've seen and felt the fact that your Heavenly Father loves you. He cares about you. That's why Jesus told those stories to, to convey to you just how much God loves you. And if you've never personally put your faith in Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, began that journey of following him, wouldn't it be awesome today to start that journey? to come home to your heavenly father. And you're like, well, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. As we sing and pray and respond, tap me on the shoulder. I'll point you in the right direction. We'll get that started. We'll, we'll, we'll throw a party here. And you're like, well, no, never mind. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. Like, but but like, we'll be excited for you that you finally made the decision to follow Jesus. And we wanna help you with that. We sincerely do. And then we can talk about next steps after that. What I'd like to do today is some of you uh, who feel comfortable, and I know it, sh- it should be a lot of some of yous, all right, but, but some of you or all of you who feel comfortable, can we just spend some time praying for people again today? Um, up front here, there are several cards uh, with people, again, who uh, have asked to, to pray for somebody else. And if you would be willing to come and just kneel and pray and Pray over one or two or three. If you want to add some names of people that you're praying for, or if you just don't want to, even even if you don't want to put the name of somebody, to say I've got somebody close to me that I need, I need you to pray that I'm bold and I share my faith with them. And we'll just do that. We'll spend some time just praying. And then if you want to take some of these Easter cards and make a commitment to writing a note to them and inviting them and asking them to join you on Easter, Um, but can can we spend some time doing that uh, again this morning? And this is where you say, Amen. Amen, we can do that. All right. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace. And God, I do pray for anyone who is here, who is lost, who is still spiritually dead, who's never made the decision to begin to follow you. I pray that today would be the day that they make that decision. Or today would be the day that they decide to have a conversation with somebody about making the decision. God, um, We don't change anybody's hearts. You do, Holy Spirit. You're the only one that can change anybody. But God, you call us to have your heart for people. And and I pray that that would become truer and truer of us, that we would have your heart for people as we go about living our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's respond as you feel led this morning.